Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt, scientist, entrepreneur, and investor Sinan Aral, the David Austin Professor of Management, Marketing, IT, and Data Science at MIT, examines the huge influence that social media have on our lives today. He explains how they came to that position of dominance how they magnify trends, give people more of what they want, and offer great promise of benefits for the future, as well as uh, great dangers in facilitating the spread of fake news, recruiting conspiracy theorists and extremists, and exacerbating our already paralyzing polarization. His book is published by Currency, and it brings Professor Sinanaral to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you... Uh, the name that you've given it, the uh, the hype machine, doesn't uh, make it sound uh, like a compliment. By calling it a machine, aren't you implying that no one is really in control of it, that it's on autopilot with its engineers hooked up to the desires of people that fuel it and, and keep it going? Uh, like any machine, it has uh, controls and the controls that it has are rooted in economic, neurological, and societal levers that we have to direct it towards its promise and away from its peril. And that's really the reason I wrote the book. So, you know, there's this great documentary on Netflix right now called The Social Dilemma that I'm sure many of your yeah. listeners have seen or are talking about. And I love this documentary. I'm a big fan. Some of my friends are in it. Uh, but my book really starts where this movie leaves off by asking, you know, what can we do, practically speaking, to fix the social media crisis we find ourselves in? And that's where those four levers really come into play. You write that the, the hype machine is, quote, directed, enabled, and constrained by controlling algorithms. So who controls them? And, and what are the motives? Yeah, so uh, the hype machine has developed, and the hype machine is the social media economy, the social media industrial complex, has developed over the last 10 or 15 years uh, by a set of profit-seeking companies in the context of a social environment, in a context of regulation, all of which offer possibilities for control. And so the four levers are money, code, norms, and laws. The money mm -hmm. are the business models of these companies, which create the incentives for the engineers that you're talking about, as well as the incentives for the executives and the users of the platforms. The code is the design of the platforms and the algorithms that run, for instance, the news feed and so on. The norms are how we as a society adopt this technology and what values we place into it by the way that we use it. And of course, the laws are the many different market failures that deserve regulatory scrutiny from privacy to free speech versus hate speech to competition. We have a big antitrust report coming out from the House on Monday uh, and so on. You say that the hype machine is often used to manipulate consciousness, to change behavior, to favor certain interests or, or profits, not always in the public's best interests, uh, neither political, financial, or health. How vulnerable are we to malicious or exploitative actors? 
You and, know, and where I, could I, we I, go for support or advice about how how to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, today we are wide open. You know, in 2016, it is the consensus of our intelligence community uh, that Russia orchestrated a sweeping sure. manipulation uh, of our election, spreading manipulative messages to 126 million people on Facebook, 20 million people on Instagram, 10 million tweets on Twitter, 43 hours of YouTube content, and we're no more prepared today than we were four years ago for the same type of even more sophisticated manipulation that's happening. Uh, for ordinary people, I think there are a few things that we could do. Obviously, we're not going to pass legislation in the next 30 days to protect our election. But I think that there are a number of things that individuals can do. Number one is to uh, um, check your emotional pulse. So in a 10-year study of Twitter that we published in Science, we found that fake news and manipulative messages tend to be emotionally arousing. They are surprising, salacious, anger-inducing. So if you feel an emotional uh, response, you know, take a beat and step back. I also think that the 80-20 rule applies to a lot of the manipulative efforts, which is that they can be debunked with a few clicks uh, searching on Google. And so just having the reflective moment to do those kinds of searches and to check the source of the information is important. You mentioned what happened in Wisconsin in, 20, in the 2016 election, where black voter turnout was down by 50%, much of it apparently attributable to Russian originating Facebook ads that targeted Facebook users interested in African American history, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And its message was, no one in this election represents black people, don't vote. And, yeah. and that obviously worked. Well, this was a also uh, also thousands of, of video messages sent out on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. That's right. So uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee commissioned uh, studies of the 2016 manipulative efforts by Russia. And what they found was that, for instance, on in Instagram, the vast majority of those efforts were targeted at voter suppression to convince people not to vote. And I go into detail in my, in my book about why that's the case, and it's because turnout is much easier to change than vote choice. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get people to switch from one candidate to another, especially if they're entrenched voters. But it's much easier to get them to either turn out or to stay home. So a lot of the manipulative messages were targeted at African-American communities as well as other communities to get them to stay home. Um, and whether or not that worked is still an open question because those specific messages have not been studied. But two very large studies conducted by Facebook themselves of 61 million people uh, in 2010 and 2012 showed that it could significantly affect voter turnout. You don't mention these in your book, but Kathleen Hall Jameson, the, the founder of factcheck.com, believes that Russian trolls and hacking actually tipped the 2016 election in Trump's failure. And Dreg Palast claims that Chris Kobach's interstate cross-check scheme that purged around one and a half million minority voters uh, had a major effect. Yes. So I do talk about um, uh, Kathleen Hall Jameson's mm -hmm. book, 
uh, and and her research, uh, she she's actually a well-regarded scholar as well as being the fact check uh, founder. Um, and and yes, there are a number of uh, people on both sides of that debate. Did it tip the 2016 election? Did it not tip the 2016 election? I actually evaluate all of that evidence and come up with an answer in the book, which is to say that we are not sure. And I have you know been researching this for 20 years, um, and we're not sure. And that for me is actually a scarier answer. Mm-hmm which is that 30 days before the 2020 election, we're still not sure whether the 2016 election was affected by Russia. I do think that voter turnout and voter suppression uh, affected by manipulative messages is the most likely avenue for manipulation to have an effect on this election. Are you scared at all that, according to the New York Times, the Russian servers are now based in the United States and issuing more sophisticated appeals? Absolutely. Is anybody monitoring these things? Well, I think our intelligence communities are monitoring Russian efforts. And I think that Facebook has some efforts inside Facebook, although it's not very transparent exactly what uh, efforts Facebook is adopting inside the company. But I will say that Thirty days before this election, we are facing a much more difficult situation than we were facing in 2016. One, because Russia is much more sophisticated. They're impersonating real Americans. uh, Sorry, they're nudging real Americans rather than impersonating them because of platform policies against inauthentic accounts. They've moved their servers to domestic soil to avoid surveillance, as you note. They've infiltrated Iran's cyber war department, perhaps to launch attacks made to look like they came from Iran. And all of this is happening during a global pandemic and civil unrest due to the justifiable social movements around uh, police brutality in the United States, where there's a lot of questions about in-person voting. There's a lot of questions about mail-in voting. And there's just a moment of uncertainty where a dramatic effort of manipulation could have big effects in 2020. Should I assume that the pandemic has intensified our involvement with the hype machine? Absolutely. So uh, it's funny that just before the pandemic hit, social media was a pariah. You had Sasha Mm -hmm. Baron Cohen and his keynote at the Anti-Defamation League calling it the greatest propaganda machine in history. You had the great hack movie, the delete Facebook movement, now the stop hate for profit movement, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But then when social distancing and stay home orders forced us off the streets and onto our laptops and onto the internet, all of these social media platforms started breaking records. Mark Zuckerberg was quoted as saying, we're just trying to keep the lights on over here. A lot of digital Luddites joined the social media Uh, regime for the first time, and they'll stay on it. And so I think what we realized during COVID is that this is such an important source of our modern-day human connection, our access to life-saving information. And the story that I tell in the book is that there is tremendous promise there, but there's also this potential for tremendous peril. The book is really about how do we achieve the promise and avoid the peril. I don't know if you saw the uh, article, the op-ed that Thomas Friedman wrote in the the, uh, the New York Times recently. Uh, I'm going to quote it. It's, it's kind of long, but uh, I'll give you plenty of time to respond. He said, 
I worry because Facebook and Twitter have become giant engines for destroying the two pillars of our democracy, truth and trust. Yes, these social networks have given voice to the voiceless. That is good. It can really enhance transparency. But they have also become huge, unedited cesspools of conspiracy theories that are circulated and believed by a shocking and growing number of people. These social networks are destroying our nation's cognitive immunity, its ability to sort truth from falsehood. Without shared facts on which to make decisions, there can be no solutions to our biggest challenges. And without a modicum of trust that both sides want to preserve and enhance the common good, nothing big can be accomplished. <laughs> How much of that do you agree with? I agree with all of it. To be totally frank with you, we conducted the largest ever at the time study of the spread of true and false news online with Twitter, which we published on the cover of Science Magazine in 2018. And what we found was that false news traveled farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information, sometimes by an order of magnitude. Now, the do you know why? Is it simply that people are alarmed? Yes. So at first we thought that false news spreaders were just different, uh, that maybe they had more followers or followed more people or more often verified users or used Twitter more often. All of those turned out to be the opposite. False news spreaders had fewer followers, followed fewer people and so on. And so we had to come up with a different explanation. What we found was that false news was just more novel. Uh, it was more surprising, salacious, anger-inducing, and human attention is drawn to novelty. That's very clearly established in the cognitive science literature. And we gain in status when we share novel information because it looks like we're in the know or have access to inside information. So we're spreading this information uh, you know, faster than the truth. But in reply to the op-ed by Thomas Friedman, I think the much more important question now is what do we do? That op-ed and that quote that you described is a very good summary of the dramatic danger that we're in. But we need to now quickly shift the conversation to what do we do? Because enough of kind of clarion calls and the sky is falling, we need to have a real conversation about what we can be doing today to solve this problem. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Professor Sinan Aral of MIT, and his book, the one we're discussing, is The Hype Machine, published by uh, a division of Random, a Penguin Random House called uh, Currency. Uh, now, wasn't the original promise of social media to bring people together through connection and communication. And doesn't it do that for many people? Absolutely. So as I detail in the book, uh, let's not forget the tremendous promise of social media. When Nepal had its worst earthquake in 100 years, Europe donated $3 million to relief efforts, the US 10 million, Facebook spun up a Donate Now button and raised 15.5 million people from 770. $15.5 million, more than the U.S. and Europe combined, from 770,000 people. That is a tremendous social mobilization. Research at MIT and Stanford shows 
that it creates tremendous economic opportunity. Facebook uh, alone creates $370 billion of consumer welfare each year in just the United States. In some countries, Facebook is the Internet. In the Philippines and parts of Africa, it's the key to finding jobs, to uh, conducting economic transactions. And of course, it is keeping us in touch with our friends and family around the world and creating real meaningful human connection. We shouldn't forget all of the tremendous social and economic benefits that this technology can provide. We just need to harness it for good uh, in ways that are nuanced and rigorous. You write that you hope to align social welfare with shareholder value. How, how do you intend to do that? Well, it's funny because the way I think about it, the true leaders of the new social age, the, the platform leaders and the, and the sort of activists um, that realize that uh, this short-term shareholder value concept of hyping up engagement, I call it the hype machine because the business models depend on keeping people engaged in this attention economy so that uh, they can sell advertising. And they do that through these very short-sighted uh, hyping up mechanisms that spread salacious information that get our blood boiling. But that is not long-term profit maximizing. It's not aligned with long-term shareholder value for the platforms because it creates the delete Facebook movement and the stop hate for profit movement. The real leaders of the new social age will be the ones that realize that long-term shareholder value is aligned with societal values. It's a wholesome environment where people are uh, committed to a positive product rather than the pollution that's being created today. Um, but hasn't history shown us that that's not always the case? For example, many companies in the food industry know their products are unhealthy, but boxed and bagged foods are more profitable than fresh foods. Yes, and that's why, uh, as I describe in the longest chapter in the book, which is the chapter about how do we build a healthier social age, that there are a number of market failures that require regulation. Uh, the fact that these market failures are not, the costs of them are not borne by the platforms themselves mean that they are not going to change on their own. And so there are a number of places in which we need the law in order to uh, create a healthy environment. So in the, in the food industry, for instance, uh, we have labels on all of our food that tell us how many calories, how many trans fats, whether it's produced in a facility that produces wheat or peanuts if you have an allergy. We don't have any of those labels for the information we consume on social media, but we should. And we need to understand the provenance of the information that we're consuming. And that's just one example. We have privacy, we have free speech versus hate speech, we have election integrity, we have competition, and each one of these represents a market failure that we need to address. You say that the wisdom of crowds, uh, collective intelligence, and the is the, uh, the foundation of uh, democracy resting on, on three pillars, independence, diversity, and equality. And the hype machine erodes all three and turns wisdom into madness? That's correct. So I was an, uh, a, an avid fan of James Surowiecki's book, The Wisdom of Crowds, which he published mm -hmm. in 2004. Fantastic book. Uh, the only problem with James Surowiecki's uh, thesis is that that book was published the same year that Facebook was founded. And the, <laughs> wis the wisdom of crowds is 
built on these three pillars of independence, diversity, and equality. Independence of, of ideas, diversity of ideas, and equality of voice for those ideas. And uh, social media destroys and erodes all three of those pillars, but it doesn't have to. That chapter describes how we regain the wisdom of our crowd. But there seems to be a paradox in that the hype machine um, facilitates connectedness, and yet you blame it for the rise of loneliness in our society. How has that happened? Uh, you also mentioned that the rise of social media and smartphone use corresponds with sharp increases in depression and suicide. Well, so uh, in fact, I don't take that position in the book. I think the evidence on the relationship to depression and suicide, as well as to mental well-being, is still accumulating. And we don't have very many causal studies of those relationships, although we're getting more and more longitudinal studies, uh, larger nationally representative studies. What I argue in the book is that it's loneliness that causes our need for an addiction to social media, because as a, as a social species, we evolve to connect with each other and our brains evolve to process social signals. And so when you look at the history of human evolution, and there's a whole chapter in the book called Your Brain on Social Media, which is about mm -hmm. the neuroscience of what happens in the brain when you use social media, our brains uh, evolved to be the largest relative to body weight of almost all species on the planet, not all. Uh, and the neocortex ratio, one of the largest neocortex to the rest of the brain ratios of any species, primarily to process social signals. And then we invented a technology that scales those social signals into the trillions from millions of real-time feeds of other people's lives. In that sense, the meteoric rise of social media is predictable. It's like tossing a lit match into a pool of gasoline. It's the loneliness that inspires us to use social media. We need a lot more uh, research on the relationship between social media and therefore depression, loneliness, and, and suicide. People often turn to it when they're just bored or when mm -hmm. uh, they're not the, the thing they're watching on television stops uh, taking, yeah, keeping them interested. Um, mm -hmm. But on another front, the other day, Bernie Sanders said that social media companies must finally get their act together and prevent social media from spreading disinformation. And isn't that a real problem when it comes to the ways members of, of groups like QAnon are recruited? Uh, a front page in the New York Times uh, business section on September 22nd criticized Facebook for its failure to keep its promise to restrain, if not censor, QAnon. You don't mention QAnon in the book, but uh, obviously uh, you wrote it before all of this stuff really became big news story. I have to tell you, this is, I think, one of the most dangerous elements of uh, social media. And the second chapter in the book is called The End of Reality. It tries to paint a picture for what happens when we have uh, population scale platforms that target uh, uh, individual messages that individual people or clusters of people that paint completely different realities for those different groups of people uh, from, you know, everything from health information to political information to economic information. And what happens when we don't have a shared reality? 
that we're operating from. And in terms of political misinformation and in terms of public health misinformation, it can be incredibly dangerous. Take COVID, for instance. We're conducting uh, one of the largest global behavioral uh, surveys of COVID responses in collaboration with Facebook and the World Health Organization at MIT. Uh, and one of the things we're tracking is vaccine confidence. How confident yeah. are you in the vaccine and will you take it if and when it comes? And that is very sensitive to the information we have about the vaccine, whether it's misinformation or uncertain information. And so when we get public health information that's uncertain or false, misleading, it can dramatically affect the decisions that we make in this case, for example, in whether we take the vaccine, which will have a dramatic impact on the trajectory of the pandemic going forward. And that's just one example. But so, many people, there, there is a, a faction out there that is anti-vaxxer, but many people might be suspicious about a vaccine that comes along right now because they're suspicious of Donald Trump's motives. Yes. I think that that's uh, one of, certainly one of the narratives that's going on. When you think about the anti-vax movement, uh, just before coronavirus hit in 2019, we had one of the largest outbreaks of measles in the United States uh, for a very long time. So measles was eradicated in the U.S. in the year 2000. 2010, there were 63 cases of measles in the United States. In 2019, there were 1,250 cases in just the first six months of the year. And if you look at where those cases happened, it was in places like Rockland County, New York, and Clark County, Washington. Then if you examine the data on Facebook advice for anti-vaccine content, you'll see that it's targeted at exactly those communities in which outbreaks were occurring. Uh, this is a perfect example of how misinformation can dramatically affect behavior and then affect the public health of everyone, whether they're vaccinating or not. And you've done research on the diffusion of fake news. What are your findings and conclusions after working for a decade with Twitter to, to characterize fake news? And, and, and how do false facts spread differently from, from true facts? Yeah, so uh, we've done a number of studies uh, at the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, which I direct, um, about fake news. In 2018, we published this uh, uh, paper with Twitter on 10 years of uh, Twitter data on all the true and false news that spread on Twitter. And what we found was that false news was much faster, deeper, broader than the truth. Since that time in the last two years, uh, we've been studying interventions to address the spread of false news. What works? What doesn't work? What can we actually do? Um, my colleagues, Dave Rand, uh, Gordon Pennycook, and Dean Eccles, and myself and others have been researching uh, large-scale experiments on, for instance, uh, nudges to be reflective or labeling or uh, other types of interventions that can affect false news. And what we find is that there are meaningful ways that we can reduce the spread of false news. The real danger from the study that we found in 2018 was that if false news spreads so fast, far and wide, it outruns any truth. It outruns debunking of that false news. By the time you correct a false piece of information, it's already done a great deal of damage, and we need to stop it spreading 
uh, at the source. In the book, I have a number of different recommendations for exactly how we do that. Are so-called cognitively reflective people more immune to fake news? Yeah. And if yeah, that's the case, how can someone become more cognitively yeah, reflective? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's 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 funny. Uh, my uh, colleague Dave Rand and his collaborator Gordon Pennycook did this uh, fantastic set of studies, actually, that showed that people who are more reflective, cognitively cognitively reflective, are less. Um, susceptible to believing fake news and less likely to share it. Uh, then they did a very large uh, experimental study where they uh, nudged people to be more reflective. And the way they did that, as you're asking, is they asked people to, every once in a while in their feed, they would show them an article and they would say, what do you think of, do you think this, this uh, headline is accurate? Yes or no. And just that simple step of thinking about whether what they're reading is accurate or not uh, had them believing less and sharing less fake news later on in their newsfeed, just to get them in the mode of thinking critically about what they're reading was enough to statistically significantly change the amount they believed and shared fake news. Plus, if you instituted this at scale and asked people this question over and over again in their newsfeed, you would collect trillions of labels of actual news articles for whether or not things were accurate or not, then you could combine that with machine learning to then label uh, information and give some of the provenance that we were talking about earlier in terms of food being labeled at the grocery store, having labels for information, where it comes from, how accurate it might be, and so on. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York and streaming live at WBAI.org. Time to check my Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, gotta check my Facebook, gotta take another look. Nothing new, I am hooked. What to do? Hit refresh. Facebook, Facebook, gotta check my Facebook, gotta creep on all my friends every day. There's no end, it's the Facebook way. Oh my God, yeah. 10 likes. Yeah. I'm so and we're back from that musical break. But before we get back to my conversation with Professor Sinan Aro, uh, I need to take a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet because this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at large and is financially able to come through for us right now by going to our website, give2wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep these one-hour deep dives coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, they're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. Anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org will receive a free copy of my guest's book, uh, Professor Arrell's book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our economy and our health and how we must adapt, you'll know, we receive it as a way of our saying thanks 
for being among the listeners who have chosen to sponsor this show. And because, in fact, you are our only sponsors. WBAI does not receive grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. We don't take ads. Whatever level you feel comfortable with, contributing at, um, the important thing is that you do it right now to to show that support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. And please make that call today at 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org and be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Lopez at large. And from all of us at this station, thank you. And now uh, we're returning to my guest, Sinan Aral, A-R-A-L, his book, The Hype Machine, the, uh, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How It Must Adapt. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting things that, uh, that I want to address, and I'm sure I'm not going to have enough time to get to them all. But you write that the anatomy of the hype machine has three essential components that you call a trifecta of three technologies. You want to go through them? Substrate first? Yeah, absolutely. So the three technologies that kind of came about together over the last 10 years or so to create the hype machine uh, are, number one, digital social networks. So Facebook, Twitter, uh, those kinds of networks. Number two, smartphones, which is the medium, that's the input-output device that gives us all the information, but also learns so much about us and feeds it back into the algorithms of the machine to give us the new recommendations uh, uh, each time. And then finally, the machine intelligence, the, the machine learning or the AI, uh, which is represented by this hype loop that I describe in the book, which is the dynamic interplay of machine intelligence and human behavior. The machine analyzes what we read, what we share, who we friend, to then uh, suggest who we should, what we should read next, who we should friend next, what, what we should buy next, and then we make choices based on that. And it's funny that uh, jingle that you showed, Facebook, Facebook. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I got to check my Facebook. It's so funny to me because they uh, deliver notifications of likes, shares, comments on our content in what's known as a variable reinforcement schedule, meaning we don't know when the next ping or vibration on our phone is going to come. And so we're always thinking about, I got to check my Facebook. I got to check my Facebook because I don't know when I'm going to get that dopamine hit uh, in, our, in my social reward processing system in my brain. Oh, you, you talk about um, how they, uh, they learn so much about us. That's why uh, I get certain ads uh, automatically that might not come uh, on your Facebook pages. Yes. So everything is tailored to the individual. Uh, the newsfeed, the friend suggestion algorithms, the advertisements are uh, decided upon by algorithms and models that are using your data to determine what is most likely to be most engaging for you. Did this uh, all change after Facebook shifted its orientation from desktop computers to smartphones in, in 2011? No, I think that uh, Facebook's algorithms were already personalized uh, prior to 2011. I think that um, the thing that the shift to mobile created 
was a much more always-on engagement. Now Facebook is designed and built from mobile first. Ever since 2011, uh, they've really, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg stopped using a desktop computer uh, and only used the phone, so he could only experience Facebook on the phone, and everything became optimized for the phone, and the phone's always on. It's always in our pocket. It's always with us, not only transmitting information over the hype machine to influence us, but also learning about what we do, where we are, uh, who we're with, and so on. And even minor questionable activities or infractions like speeding, illegal parking, extramarital affairs, our health, our diets, um, how we spend our time at work or at leisure, uh, all going back to, is it just Facebook or who's collecting all of this stuff? Well, uh, interestingly, there are a number of different apps on your phone right now that have data sharing agreements with these platforms that are transmitting your location, uh, different things that you're liking on or buying or viewing on all of those applications uh, to to the various platforms. And um, it's a black box. We don't know exactly what the algorithms look like. We have some sense based on the outcomes that we see. We've studied this for 20 years, but they don't publish the algorithms or the data or the weights on any one data feature uh, used to show you what they show you next. And so it's essentially a black box. We're not really 100% sure what's going on in there. 98%, I would guess, of the, the people who are suggested as friends are people that I've never heard of or, or share one or two friends, well, I guess it's 92% you point out, are, are friends of friends. That's, uh, I waste a lot of time ignoring those things. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised, but as Lars Backstrom, who's now the VP of Engineering at Facebook, uh, told me in 2010 that the lion's share of connections that's created are created by those friend suggestion algorithms. Um, and a really interesting story I tell in the book is, you know, we talk about political polarization. Why are we so polarized in society? And I go through all of the scientific evidence for whether Facebook is polarizing us. Um, but one interesting story is that the evolution of the human social network online is in large part determined by these friend suggestion algorithms, which kind of suggest to you who to connect to next. And these engineers had an engineering problem, which is that they don't want their computers to have to sift through the 4 billion possible connections to recommend the best possible person for you. They need to make that job easier for them so that their algorithms hum through the data very quickly. So what they decided was, we'll just look through friends of friends and only suggest friends of friends to you. And when, it, when you do that, you create these tightly knit clusters of people who are very similar to each other being friends and separate from other clusters that are very similar to themselves, but not to the first group. And that in part creates the clustering in the digital social network that we see. You, you, the, the strategy is called closing triangles? Closing triangles, yeah. So uh, the idea is that if a uh, uh, person, let's say uh, Tim knows John and Sally, uh, it's very likely that John and Sally are going to be friends, and that's a closed triangle of relationships. So what these algorithms tend to do and what the engineers have told me is that they're just going around, quote, unquote, closing triangles, meaning if there's, uh, if there's somebody that 
uh, knows somebody else and they have a mutual friend in common that isn't a connection, they will suggest that connection because it's very likely that they'll like each other, that they'll want to know each other, and those types of recommendations are more often taken when given to users on social media. Isn't Facebook working on a brain-computer interface where users will be able to type text just by thinking about it? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, yeah. that sounds scary to me. It means that, uh, in effect, they're reading our minds. Yes. In fact, as uh, my book was being published, uh, this unit of Facebook you know, was going live. They have already um, uh, reduced the size of their unit from a, the size of a refrigerator to the size of a small handheld device. And the idea <laughs> is that, is that it would be, you would be able to type by thinking without ever having to go through the hassle of using your fingers. Um, and it is- That's even worse than just having to talk to Siri. Exactly, exactly. You wouldn't even have to say the words out loud in order to see them type. You, you would just have to think them. And, uh, and when she was interviewed, the, the lead of this unit said, oh, you know, it's, it's not really mind control because you were already thinking to, to type that. And as I say in the book, oh, that makes me comfortable. <laughs> Every day, people spend 100 million hours with Facebook, now mostly with videos, especially since 2012 when Facebook bought Instagram. And you say that video constitutes 80% of consumer internet traffic and that viewers retain 95% of video content, but only 10% of textual content. So is video, not text, the hype machine's main medium these days? Yes. So it already is, and it's going to become more so uh, going into the future. Um, as my good friend Alex Colomer, who's the CEO of VidMob, likes to say, video is eating the world. And that's true. Uh, it is a very large portion of traffic. It's an increasing portion of traffic. It's the way that we're communicating. And it's just simply more persuasive because a picture is worth a thousand words, and the moving image is just a thousand pictures. And when we think about the future of uh, mass persuasion, when we think about also the future of fake news, we're really talking about uh, video. And um, all of these platforms have what's known as a visual cortex, which is essentially a complex system of machine learning algorithms that are designed to figure out what's happening in video uh, and to label it so that you know, is there a mountain in this video? Is there a beach ball? Are these people playing tennis? Are they running? And these same uh, algorithms, for instance, can be used to root out, um, you know, pedophilia or uh, abusive behavior and so on. And so the visual cortex, the visual conceptualization of social media is really the way people should think about it going forward. The ability to shoot videos has really changed uh, the way we understand um, this, uh, some of the uh, abuses, uh, not only uh, uh, misconduct by police, but by other people, people uh, shouting racist things at each other. Uh, th all of this would not have been known otherwise. Yes. I mean, I think that... Uh, it's changed the world, just people shooting videos on their phones. Absolutely. Uh, the fact that anybody with a phone is a potential citizen journalist uh, documenting 
either an atrocity or some amazing occurrence, uh, has, I think, changed a lot of the way that we experience the world recently. It certainly has uh, um, democratized what we have a view into. A lot of those, for instance, just take police brutality uh, as a perfect example. Um, I don't think uh, it's any uh, shock to anyone that uh, police brutality existed before video. But what we see now is that we can uh, draw people's attention to it like never before. And I think that that's such an important uh, new occurrence and one that is shedding a light on a very, very important problem today. You introduced the concept of lift, which is behavior change created or caused by persuasive social media messages. What's the, the progress of attempts to measure lift for any particular message? Yeah, this is such an important concept. So the two questions I'm asked the most in my role as a business educator is, one, did Russia tip the 2016 election? Are they going to tip the 2020 election? And two, how do I measure the ROI from my digital marketing budget? And the thing I realized in writing the book is that the answers to those two questions are the same, meaning you would go through the same process to figure out how much behavior change did Russia create in voting? And how much behavior change does your advertisement create in sales? It's the same process. The concept of lift is very simple. I tell this anecdote on the first day of my class at MIT, which is I greet people at the door with a leaflet advertising the class. I say, welcome to digital marketing. Here's your leaflet. Welcome to digital marketing. I'll be your professor. Here's your leaflet. Each student gets a leaflet. They sit down at their desk. And then I, the first question I ask is I say, what is the conversion rate of the ad that I gave you? Meaning, what fraction of people who got the ad bought the class or registered for the class? And the answer is 100%. Everybody gets that one right. And then I say, how much behavior change did that ad cause in you? And the immediate universal answer is zero. And that's the difference between correlation and causation. That's the difference between conversions and lift. Lift is the causal behavior change created by social media messages. And that's actually the underlying framework of the book. If we want to understand what effect social media has on society, whether it's Russia tipping votes or businesses selling products, we have to understand Lyft. And I describe it in very simple terms for small and medium-sized businesses that use Facebook for advertising and for policymakers that are trying to stop election manipulation. How much uh, does Lyft depend on the novelty of the message or the naivete of, of the target group? Well, I think that it, it is a combination of effective targeting. It's a combination of persuasive messaging. So the ad copy, the video uh, optimization, you know, whether or not the video is, is a persuasively created video, matching the audience to the message that would be most persuasive to them. The same thing is being done by the Russian Internet Research Agency as is being done by Procter & Gamble to sell toothpaste. And we have to understand that process if we expect to understand how social media is affecting us. Well, we've been talking about a lot of uh, negative aspects of social media, but you also list a number of instances where social media have had a beneficial effect. The, the Charlie Hebdo solidarity protests, Pavel Durov's uh, V Contacte, uh, and its attempts to fight Russian corruption 
with what was called the, the Snow Revolution, uh, various social protest movements around the world. Although you do warn that a social media created group is no substitute for a well-organized movement with long-term goals like the United States Civil Rights Movement. But um, it also, hasn't it been uh, used effectively uh, to recruit people for ISIS and now uh, spreading QAnon ideas very rapidly? And, and, and other uh, uh, groups that we really would prefer not to, to think of growing rapidly. Yeah, you know, uh, this is the dual nature of technology. It can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And it's very powerful. It can be a very powerful force for good. I describe, as you say, very progressive and important social movements. I describe the, the dramatic rise in organ donation. I describe the tremendous economic opportunities and benefits and um, uh, spread of, of, of important public health information. Uh, but as well, I describe all of these dangers that you're, that you're describing as well. When you think about just the question of ISIS, that's a really good example to, to highlight the promise and the peril, which is that Yes, ISIS uses social media to recruit new users, uh, new ISIS uh, fighters. But uh, Google Jigsaw used the exact same process in what they called the redirect method, where they targeted anti-ISIS ads at people who were searching for ISIS and how to get to ISIS and to be in the caliphate. And they showed them videos that showed them how horrendous the conditions were in the caliphate, how abusive they were to their elderly, how they are not really fulfilling uh, the goals and ideals of a, of a true Muslim community and so on, and in an effort to get people to not uh, be recruited by ISIS. And they were very successful. They had very high conversion rates. And they were actually, so when people would search the known hotels along pathways to the caliphate that uh, new ISIS recruits would stop at, those people were met with ads that were, sh that were showing how bad ISIS was to try and dissuade them from joining. That's an example of the promise and the peril in one, uh, one good highlighted example. We have just a couple of minutes left, but uh, I want to address another thing that's in your subtitle. Your subtitle is how social media disrupts our elections, our economy and our health and how we must adapt. In your last chapter, you talk about adapting. How can we navigate the design, regulation and use of new social technologies to realize their uh, potential and avoid their peril? Yeah, this is really the, the main purpose of the book to go under the hood. And I'm, I'm giving you two minutes to do it. Yeah, 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 no problem. Uh, to describe how it works and how we adapt. And really, there's a two-step process to the adaptation. The first is that we have to create competition in the social media economy. And when we do that, then they will uh, create innovations that uh, address some of the problems that we have with them. Right now, there's no competition, and since there's no competition, they can sort of do whatever they want and earn tremendous profits regardless of what they do. Now, the way that we create competition is counterintuitive to some of the uh, cultural zeitgeist that we hear. So we hear, we should break up Facebook. I argue strongly in the book that that does not solve any of social media's problems mm -hmm. because the underlying economics will just tip the next Facebook-like company into market dominance. What we need... But couldn't Mark Zuckerberg be doing a better job? 
he could be doing a better job and he needs to have the incentive to change. And the way that he has an incentive to change is if he faces competition. And the way we create competition is through social network portability and interoperability, which is described in the book. And then the second step is to deal with each one of the market failures in turn. We need federal privacy legislation. We need uh, election integrity, both from the platforms as well as legislation. We need to have serious conversations about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where we draw the line between free speech and hate speech or harmful speech. We need to talk about fake news. There's a five, six-step plan in the last chapter about how we deal with fake news. So step one, create competition. Step two, deal with each of the market failures in turn. And we hope that we can do it in the current political climate. Yes, I, I hope we can accomplish anything in the current political climate. And the book actually uh, addresses in depth to what extent is Facebook contributing to that current political climate? Are they truly 100% uh, to blame or are there other uh, culprits in our society? Well, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. My great thanks to Sinan Aral. His book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt, published by Currency, which is a division of uh, Penguin, uh, and Penguin uh, Random House. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Joel Simpson, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere that podcasts are available. And you can also find links to all of our past shows on our, our website, LeonardLopatedLarge.com. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I uh, sign off today, I would like to ask you just one last time for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going. So please step up and, and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of this show, you will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Election, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt by my guest, Professor Sinan Aral. So why not make that pledge today and remember that WBAI depends totally on the support of our listeners. We take no money from foundations, from advertisers, or anyone else. So if, if you want to keep us going, please give us that call now. Once more, the number is six, is this, well, is, I, I've lost my number, 516-620-3602, or go online to WBAI. Dot org. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when John Dean will join us to discuss his new book, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. We'll see you then.